0: Hello, Hi. and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. My name is Darcy, and I work in the editorial team here at the II.
1: And my name's Ben, and I'm also a member of the editorial team here.
0: And today we've got the talk, How to Find and Make Sense of Happiness, featuring Professor of Behavioural Science, Paul Dolan. And this took place in 2022 at How the Light Gets In Festival. The philosophy festival produced here by the team at the ii so ben tell us a bit more about this talk
1: yeah so paul's a really interesting guy and he's got a fascinating conception of, of what happiness is he talks a lot about balancing the the hedonic with the eudaimonic so that's to say sort of uh the the short-term pleasures that we gain with things that are more sort of purposeful and provide us with a, a greater sense of sort of satisfaction and longevity um, and he's got a, a really interesting take on how we you know, maintain happiness as well as how to find it, really.
0: Interesting. And how, how would you say, how should we kind of make sense of happiness?
1: Well, I think the first thing to say is that, as cliche as it sounds, that it's not a, a one-size-fits-all thing. And I think that's possibly where we're going wrong in society is the fact that a lot of people are trying to adhere to a narrative of what success means and that there is one objective narrative of being a high-powered executive in a, in a sort of big, you know, bank or a law firm and, and people are chasing that goal without perhaps the the foresight of what is truly making them happy and expecting to, to find happiness once they reach the summit, um, which I think is a bit of a dangerous uh, notion, if you ask me.
0: Yeah, I suppose it's sort of really impossible to pick apart what's your own kind of innate, original ideas of, of what makes you happy and what's kind of impressed upon you by other people and society. Absolutely. Interesting. I also have a fun fact, which is something I learned from Paul research, which was that unmarried, childless women are statistically the happiest group of people. So, go meet.
1: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> wonderful.
0: Um, okay, wonderful. And remember if you liked today's talk, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.
1: Now, I think it's time. Let's hand over to Paul Dolan.
0: So one of the most
2: widely used survey questions that I'm going to base a lot of what I talk about evidence on is asking people overall how satisfied they are with their life these days or words to that effect. It kind of varies from survey to survey, but that's the kind of essence of the question. How satisfied are you with your life? On a scale between zero and ten, in survey data, typically the averages are seven point something, right? They kind of, you know, change a little bit over time. Um, and in the UK over the last decade, you know, sort of 0. 0.2, 0. 0.3 here and there. But they're kind of around the seven seven and a half, 7.7, 7.6 is. If, if we look at tens of thousands of people over decades, ask them that question about how satisfied they are with their life and then find out all sorts of other stuff about them. What other stuff about them has the biggest effects on the scores they give. The first thing to say as an academic is that we, we, we always caveat what we say with, we're trying to establish causal mechanisms, right? I wanna show something causal about the effects of jobs, health, housing, income on happiness. I don't want a correlation because that correlation could also mean that happier people have better jobs, nicer houses and so on, right? What I want is a causal effect. I wanna, I wanna establish the treatment effect of having more money or or a better job or a nicer house better health on people's happiness and it's hard to establish causal mechanisms without randomized controlled trials right what i'd love to be able to do is to randomize people to different income levels or to different health status and i'm now going to start drawing attention to what i think is then going to be the fundamental thing that i want to say to you which is about the role of attention the reason part of the reason why the lack of money makes people miserable is because they're paying attention to not having enough money. They're paying attention to whether they can pay the bills, feed the kids, service the debt. It's a very attention seeking condition. As people get richer, it's, then it becomes truer that money doesn't make people happy. When you get to the average levels of income or a little bit above, the relationship then between happiness and income becomes very flat because, largely because, you cease to be paying attention to something in a negative way. Interestingly, some of the evidence suggests, and this is kind of a little bit um, unclear, or the evidence is mixed, I should say, that at very high levels of income, happiness levels might start to fall again. And I think this is again due to an attentional phenomenon, that you then start paying attention to money have I got the right stocks and shares? Do I have the right portfolio? Have we bought a big enough house? All these things that draw attention to themselves, not always in positive ways. And I think that income, when you want when say how people should interpret evidence on income, is that if anyone
1: do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? and there's no commitment to pay. So subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
2: Watches football or actually any sport where you have a referee? Often people will say the refs had a good game because he or she wasn't seen, right? So they didn't really notice the ref in the game. And I think that's what income is like for us or ought to be like for us, right? When you're not paying attention to it, you probably have just enough money. When you're paying attention to it, you're probably not paying attention to it in good ways. Certainly not when you're poor, and maybe not even when you're rich. So that's income largely dealt with. But the fundamental point I wanna make is that when you say anything, does anything make someone happy? I say, well, it depends on how much attention you pay it. So when uh, people have talked about the determinants of happiness, they've talked about the role of income in explaining happiness. That's a bit like trying to explain how many widgets a firm makes by just looking at the inputs of land, labor, and so on. But there's a production process in the middle, yeah, that converts those inputs into the outputs. You can produce more widgets by having more inputs and also by having a more efficient production process. There's a production process of happiness that has been largely absent from our academic you know, kind of conversations, and that I talk a lot about in Happiness by Design, which is the production process of attention, right? All of, all of those inputs convert into happiness through the role of attention, whether and in what ways, and for how long, whether it's positively, negatively, and so on, the attention you pay to it determines how much that input affects your, out, your outcome of happiness, just like the production process of inputs producing the number of widgets. So all the answers to all the questions will be, it depends on how much attention is paid to it and in what ways. And I think income is one of those things you don't want to be paying attention to. Health is a fundamental determinant of people's happiness. Mental health in particular, much more than physical health. Why? Because by and large, not always and everywhere, people get used to physical functioning problems in a way that they don't to mental health problems, right? Mental health problems continually draw attention to themselves. Right, if, you've got a, if you were to have an injury that made you less mobile, insofar as that wasn't very painful and drawing attention to itself, you would adapt relatively quickly to that. But mental health problems, anxiety, depression, you don't get used to them. You don't get less depressed after a year than you were after a day. It constantly draws attention to itself. And if we're gonna use happiness data to inform policy, that's not what I'm here to talk about today, then we would give much greater priority to mental health conditions than we currently do because of the constant attention seeking nature of those conditions. <laughs> housing quality, How, it's interesting, we don't really have much on housing quality, we have, we have on whether you rent or own, lots of data on that, some data showing that whether people, own uh, some data sometimes showing that, that people that own their own homes are happier than those that aren't, but not always and everywhere what else there was jobs I mean unemployment is actually one of the biggest and longest lasting effects on people's happiness again if you're thinking about policy interventions then mitigating the harm of unemployment Um, unemployment scars even when you're back in work again and we think that's because again a, a kind of attentional phenomenon around security right if I've lost my job once I can lose it again even though I'm now back in work. So from a standard economic metric, you've got someone back in work, everything's fine, they're earning more money. But from a wellbeing perspective, they're less happy than they would have been had they not lost their job in the first place. I would advise you in as this is gonna be some sort of self-help class, um, if you're thinking about quitting something or doing something or you know, leaving a job, leaving a partner even, that's where it gets a little dodgy, um, do it. <laughs> 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 because, <laughs> because of our ability to make sense of stuff. Um, actually, I'm gonna ask you to put your hands up about something else. Hands up if you're now with somebody as, a, you know, as your partner, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, wife, husband, who's less good than someone you were with previously. <laughs> Go on, be honest. No? No one? Well, yeah, this really turns to whether you make it public or not. That's a really, uh, of course, but even in private, even in private, most people won't think they are because we have an amazing capacity for cognitive dissonance. We're able to interpret and understand things and explain things. That's the key part to adaptation is explanation. And when you have uncertainty, you can't explain uncertainty. There's no resolution to uncertainty through explanation. So you have to resolve the uncertainty and then you can move on. Part of the reason why we see in the happiness data around marriage and separation and then when you get the divorce is that there's an uptick after the separation ends because the separation is an attention seeking phase. Will we get back together again, won't we? Divorce is final, done, move on. We, we have an extraordinary ability to get over stuff um, in ways that we're not often able to forecast very, very well. That's uh, good things and bad things. But the next, the next layer beyond the conditions and circumstances is um, our selves and identities, our personalities, our expectations, the kinds of people we are, whether we're introvert, extrovert, um, whether we ha- construct identities and stories. A lot of our lives are lived in narratives and stories about ourselves and about our lives. What role do they play in, in our Happiness. We don't have actually lots of good data on many of these identities. It's much it's much easier to ask people questions about their income and about their health, or it's just been more routine to do that over time than it has to ask them questions about um, themselves, their attitudes, beliefs, and so on. Um, in the personality, I know if people who are familiar with the personality uh, dimensions, you can you can think of the, the, the there's a kind of big five. Um, that you might think of as ocean, which is openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Uh, unsurprisingly, n- neurotics are less happy. Um, extroverts report being um, happier than introverts. We, we don't have very much good data, but of course how we, how we deal with our conditions and, our, and how we deal with our circumstances will be a function of our expectations and the kind of people we are. Um, we have you know, some data showing this would be unsurprising that if you move up the social mobility ladder, um, there are some small gains, but moving down the social mobility ladder, there are significant losses, right? Much greater than the gains from moving up, right? Moving down generally is a bad thing, right? To see your income fall by 10% compared to rise by 10% is much, much more painful. I wanna then move on to the next layer which is what we do, right? And when we start measuring happiness in the ways that I advocate in Happiness by Design, which is much more experiential, much more about asking people how happy they are when they're going about their daily lives, right? Not when they're reflecting on how satisfied they are with it, whatever that answer might mean in the two seconds that it takes them to answer it. But when we, when we drill down into finding out what people do, who they're with, and what they're thinking about in their minds, then I think we get a better and more rich, rich measure of the flow of experience um and as anyone who's seen happiness by design knows that i talk about pleasure and purpose as the twin sets of experiences we're not only interested in being happy in a fun sense but we also want to be happy in a fulfillment worthwhileness meaningful sense and happy lives are ones that contain the right balance between those two things but when we look at the activities that people engage in most of the evidence is is really obvious but overlooked in the sense that Everyone, when I, when I say the following things to you, you're going to say, no shit, professor at the LSE is telling me that. Um, and I'll say, well, why aren't you doing more of it then? Right? And again, I need to be careful because there's significant variation across individuals. Right? Any, anyone who says there's a one-size-fits-all approach to happiness is probably selling you snake oil. So my one-size-fits-all approach to happiness is to say that listen to more music. I mean, the, the evidence on music is is overwhelming I mean it literally lights the whole brain up um, in ways that no other stimulus can and not only at the time that you're listening to the music but for, but for some time there there thereafter listen to music that you enjoy obviously that not someone else forces you to listen to um, <laughs> like your parents or something um, I'm trying to get my kids to like the music I like it. it's really hard um, I will win um, in the end um, so they can be their authentic selves uh, <laughs> what was I talking about? Right, yes, so music, um, laughter. That's a, I mean, that's a really, it's really interesting that we can prescribe laughter on the NHS now, social prescriptions for laughter. It's kind of good on, good, good on the one hand that, that it's evidence-based, but a bit sad on the other hand that you need a prescription to laugh. Obvious, but overlooked, right? We're not building it into our daily, daily lives and daily experiences. Um, going outdoors. Being around nature, biophilia it's called. That's you know, that's kind of good for us, even in ways that we might not predict. Having new experiences. That's that's the reason why time passes so slowly for kids, because every day is a new experience to them. When you get to our ages, every day's the fucking same. I mean, it's like waiting for death. Um, uh, well, yeah, I, I've still I've still got I still have to come to death, don't I? I'll um, uh, finish finish on death at the end. Um, leave you with a really positive note to go away on. Um, Help other people. I cannot impress upon you enough how selfish helping other people is and how we should be celebrating that selfishness much more than we do. And actually this is where we do have good randomised control evidence, that if you tap into the personal benefits of pro-sociality, you get more of it for longer. If you draw attention to volunteers, the benefits that they're gonna get from volunteering, they help other people for more and for longer. And yet we have this narrative around charity of it being something that is a hierarchy that at the top of this hierarchy is the sort of self-flagellation, the cleansed of any personal benefit, altruism. I think that's harmful. It's harmful for getting more pro-sociality. Um, so being more transparent, it's really interesting. that I can observe lots of things about you, right? Um, obviously age and race and so on, but also probably your income levels and you know, other, other things. But how generous you are is something that's unobservable. <laughs> Right. Um, If we make it more transparent, we would get more of it. There are some data we we actually got we we have one paper looking at exercise and, and, and what keeps people going and sticking at it. And unsurprisingly, perhaps, although this is not doesn't really play into a lot of the public health messaging is fun, enjoyment. Like there's lots of stuff in the behavioral sciences that show how stupid people are. We get lots of stuff wrong all of the time. We mispredict, we misforecast. But we're not that stupid. If something feels good, we're more likely to carry on doing it. If something feels bad, we're more likely to stop. But it's getting that feedback. It's making that feedback salient to people that actually it is enjoyable to exercise and therefore I'm going to carry on doing it rather than setting it up as some laudable goal around health and some long-distant effects on my mortality, which, which aren't really motivational for people. So we, so we, we had a paper uh, published a little while ago looking at the impact of the 2012 London Games on well-being. Uh, we, we, we actually, because we knew that was going to happen, we, we, we got data in Paris, Berlin and London in 2011, 2012 and 2013. So we l- could look at the differences between those cities in the years before, during and after the Games. Punchline is, is the opening ceremony what won it? Can anyone remember Danny Boyle's opening ceremony of the 2012 Games? Amazing. Right, that was actually where all the significant happiness hit was from it didn't matter whether we won loads of gold or what days because we had day of the week you know data during that that, uh, time and it disappeared by 2013. So whether you think that was worth nine billion quid or not um, is an open question. (laughs) Uh, We are currently looking at Eurovision Uh, we'll see whether there may be some uh, small effects of uh, when that event takes place uh, but that's an open question We're, we're yet to determine that data from the US suggests that Thanksgiving is a really good day um, for happiness Christmas the evidence on that is more mixed and of course that's where the individual variation comes in um, it's a good day for lots of people it's a sad lonely day for others New Year's Eve this is where expectations are really significant someone mentioned that before some data suggesting if you have a really if you really plan the party and you're really looking forward to it, it's less good than if it's spontaneous and you don't plan very much that's often true of life like organized fun is something that I'm not a big fan of mostly. Um, Disorganized fun and chaos in the fun space is really good for us. But then you see, this is where some of the evidence is sort of like, well, how do I take this and what should I do? Because if we start looking at holidays, then nearly all of the benefit and the data on this is reasonably clear, comes in anticipation of it, not during. And anyone who's ever a family holiday knows exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) There's nothing enjoyable about a family holiday well maybe there's a few moments but most of it is in the anticipation of how good it will be and sometimes in the memory of the one moment that was joyful right everyone knows that right you've got seven days of hell everyone's falling out and shouting and screaming at each other one moment where the family coalesces and that's what you draw down as the memory and you say what a fantastic time you had on holiday and it makes you book again for next year because you look forward to it have a shit time and remember it well, um, uh, but, the, but the really significant point in, in, in this is, um, is that anticipation and memory are significant parts of experience, right? We shouldn't just look only at events and whether they were worth it in some happiness sense, but the looking forward to and the remembering and the conversations that get created around those experiences, right? Because sometimes we can have a really bad experience and draw it down later in humour and as a shared experience with other people who shared in that bad experience too. So it's not straightforward. Big birthdays, like 30, 40, they're not very happy for people, some data suggest. And you know that there's about a 7% increase in the likelihood of death in the day of, or the day after your birthday, uh, particularly, particularly when you're younger in your 20s and 30s. Um, so that's another reason for not having organised fun. I, I never, I, a little rant, I mean, when someone says, oh, come out for my birthday, it's like, well, how old are you? 42. I'm, like, I'm like, who cares about your 42nd birthday? Um, you shouldn't after the age of about 12. Um, so <laughs> this idea this idea of organised fun is a, is is an interesting one. But ceremony, I think what it does do, like events like the Jubilee, they do provide us with social connectedness. They do provide us with a shared experience. They do provide us with something to look forward to. Right? These are all good reasons for these celebrations, whether they be the Jubilee or something else. But at the same time, or and at the same time, this is not mutually exclusive. Why aren't we just having more fun day to day? Why do we I mean I know that happiness is in looking forward to stuff but why not just actually spend more time having fun? Right? Some data suggests that you know it's about 10 minutes a day that we that we that we actually have any fun. I mean, it's not very long. <laughs> it's not very long. So when you're thinking about the decisions that you're going to make in life, think about not what you're paying attention to when you're deciding, but what you might pay attention to when you experience. <music>
0: Well, that was an extremely
1: interesting talk. I'd say so as well. And before we go, I'd like to thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. And remember, if you did enjoy this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.